Welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. As mandated by the UN Security Council, two guests today. Amjad Iraqi will discuss the situation of Arab citizens of Israel and Israel's intentions in the war on Gaza. And Georgi Derlogian will talk about the expulsion of Armenians from Nagorno-Karabakh and what it says about the creeping global disorder, part of a World War III that he sees is already underway. Israel, while officially the state of the Jewish people, has a population that is one-fifth Arab, mostly, though not exclusively, Palestinian. They are second-class citizens, restricted in almost every sphere of life, and largely overlooked by foreigners. What are their lives like, both in normal times, whatever those are, and in times of war? Here to answer that question is Amjad Iraqi, who describes himself as a Palestinian citizen of Israel. He's a senior editor at Plus972 magazine and a policy member of the Al-Shabaka think tank, a transnational Palestinian enterprise. Also, 972 mag published a translation of a document produced by the Israeli intelligence ministry recommending that the Palestinian population be evicted from Gaza and deposited over the border in Egypt where they can live unwelcomed in tents. He'll talk about that too. Amjad Iraqi. First, I'd like a, a general picture of the Israeli Arab population, or actually the name is controversial, right? With- yeah, the best way to say is like Palestinian citizens of Israel or uh, Arab citizens of Israel. And it's about a fifth of the population. What is their general social status? So in theory, you know, having Israeli citizenship, which uh, Palestinians inside the country have had since 1948 to 1950, in theory, it's supposed to provide them with equal status to Jewish Israeli citizens. But that has never been the case. Uh, And it's not just a question about sort of like historical gaps uh, in economic policies. It's actually quite legally enshrined uh, through a a huge structure of laws uh, that have been in place since the founding of the state that inherently make Palestinians and non-Jews in general uh, second-class citizens. Uh, A lot of these laws have had to do with, uh, for example, like land dispossession. So even though most people associate land confiscations with Palestinians, uh, who are in exiles, refugees, or in the occupied territories, actually this also happened and still happens for Palestinian citizens inside the country. And this affects, you know, everything from their urban landscape to the towns that they're allowed to live in, even the racial segregation and discrimination and housing. But these laws also go to things as far as sort of like um, family unification. So if Palestinian citizens even want to marry or extend their citizenship to Palestinian spouses and children from the occupied territories who are part of our daily life and society, there's an Israeli law in place that actually bans that almost explicitly for demographic purposes. And there's a whole list of these other kind of legal infrastructure that inherently makes a second class. And this is on top of the general social attitudes by much of the Jewish majority, which constantly tries to remind us that we don't belong here and that we should not expect full equality in the state. So this is really the kind of macro reality and that even though we have better rights uh, and statuses compared to other Palestinians and have access to certain uh, social, economic and political institutions, we remain uh, those inferior citizens. It seems like there's a real fundamental contradiction here from the start. If if this if Israel is a Jewish state, non-Jewish people really don't fit in. This is the thing. And I mean, it's important to remember that it was the state of Israel came on top of Palestinians, not that the Palestinians came to the state of Israel. So uh, as soon as the state was established, you know, it became very clear about what its vision of its uh, society was going to be. And it was, and this is the ideology, the ideology of Zionism, which talked about basically maximum land for Jews and minimum land for Palestinians, if any land for Palestinians. Everything from the state symbols to the way that it identifies itself to the way that politicians envision the future is very much centered around one ethnic group. It's not something hidden. It's very overt, very explicit, even before this particular far-right government came to power. There are substantial property uh, ownership restrictions, right, for non-Jews? Very much so, yeah. As I was mentioning, like, you know, in the first 20 years of the state, uh, up until 1966, Palestinian citizens inside the country actually lived under military rule. Uh, so basically the same kind of regime that you see in the occupied West Bank or in Gaza actually operated in Arab towns inside the state. And during those first 20 years, that was when uh, Israel really 
uh, confiscated masses of land belonging to Palestinians inside the country. And the ramifications of that confiscation are still felt to this day. But even just in the past 10, 15 years, you have these new uh, land laws, something called like, for example, the Admissions Committees Law, which allows these sort of small panels on uh, very rural uh, Israeli communities or or farming communities to basically reject an applicant based on what they define as a social and cultural fabric of that community, which basically means that they can reject anyone for their identity. And it's explicitly designed uh, to kind of weed out Palestinian citizens from those areas. Uh, And there are many other examples, but it's it's showing that even these uh, methods are still kind of being imagined even to this day. It's not just something of the past. And how segregated are Arabs residentially? Almost entirely. I think something like uh, 90% of the population in Israel are live in enti- entirely segregated communities. Uh, there's a few, so what are defined as uh, quote-unquote mixed cities, uh, like Yaffa and Haifa and Akka. These used to be Palestinian Arab cities, which then cut through processes of demographic uh, kind of expulsions and, and housing, etc., became Jewish-majority towns. Uh, but for the most part, most Arab citizens and most Jewish citizens live in exclusively uh, ethnic uh, ethnic towns. And uh, this population does have divisions within it. Uh, there are Muslims, there are Christians, Bedouins, right? Could you describe uh, the makeup of 20% of the Israeli population? Yeah, I think the, ma- the majority of Palestinian citizens are Muslim. And something like 9-10% are Christian and nine, ten, uh, another 9% are uh, Druze, uh, which is a very particular uh, kind of religious group. And the Bedouins themselves are also Muslims. Uh, they just have a certain uh, kind of different way of life, mostly in the south and in the north. Uh, so this is a, a, quite a makeup. And even though obviously the Mus- uh, Muslims make up the majority, uh, I think I also want to point out that Palestinian Christians are actually a huge and integral part of the community and of the identity, including cities like Nazareth, um, you know, which is basically considered sort of like the Arab capital inside Israel. So it's quite a diverse uh, community in that respect. And educationally, um, are the schools segregated? Yes. So Israel has uh, two separate education systems. One is in Hebrew and one is in Arabic. Uh, All of them, however, are determined by kind of the Israeli education ministry and Israeli institutions. It's in theory, again, supposed to be different from the idea of segregation that people are used to in the United States, whereby it's uh, considered that there should be a kind of a a main core curriculum and that people just uh, learn and study and grow up in their main uh, dominant language of Hebrew or Arabic. But in reality, everything from budget to the content to the involvement of security services, they lean heavily against the Arabic education system. Um, even when you go to these schools, you can see to many of these schools, you can see immediately that they don't have the same kind of resources as uh, as Hebrew language schools. The extent of the involvement, for example, of Israeli intelligence services in monitoring political activism and monitoring teachers and students, and there's a long history of this, also exists very much in the Arab sector. So this segregation, you know, even so kind of presented as something that's meant to uh, provide for different communities' needs, in reality is also being used against us to uh, maintain that aspect of inferiority. Uh, What about social indicators like poverty rates and health? Uh, the Palestinian population inside Israel is kind of disproportionately represented uh, in those sectors. The health system in Israel, by and large, is actually quite, it's one of the few things where there's a bit more sort of equal access and equal services. And Palestinian citizens you know, make up a huge number of doctors and pharmacists, uh, etc. And there are, of course, a few communities which are kind of structurally impoverished, uh, especially by state inequality. But you kind of still see this, uh, you still see that um, that difference in many respects, um, especially down in the Nakab where Bedouin communities, some of which are regarded as, uh, you know, quote unquote, unrecognized by the state, even though many of them were either established by the state in the 50s uh, or were, you know, existed even before the state uh, was created. And because the state refuses to even give them uh, that recognition, it means that they're uh, at risk of things like demolition, and therefore they are not allowed to even have health clinics, etc. So these are just some of the kind of the more complex factors within different aspects of the community. But even they still often need require much more resources than uh, than is actually provided to them. And poverty rates. Poverty rates very much the same. Uh, I I can't recall the exact figure, um, but it's known that in Israel the two uh, disproportionate communities in uh, under under the poverty line are Palestinian citizens and the ultra orthodox or Haredi community. And even here, there's like that sort of disparities whereby the government sort of provides a lot of services to the ultra orthodox community in regards to things like religious education. This is both inside Israel, but also in the occupied territories. Uh, but you don't see that same provision of even basic services for much of the Palestinian community. And political participation and representation? 
So Palestinian citizens have the right to vote, and they've always had it since uh, 1949, 1950. But this itself is not an an indicator of their political power. Uh, I think this can also be proven in the United States, whereby being able to vote does not always mean your full enfranchisement and and full influence. So especially in the early years of the state, for example, much of Palestinian political expression was very brutally uh, suppressed. And after military rule ended, you had much more opening up for things like Arab political parties. Uh, We now have like, especially like four main parties, Arab-led parties. Some are represented in the Knesset and others operate outside it. But you can see from the experience of Arab politicians in the Knesset, uh, the extent to which they are targeted, to which they are demonized. Uh, There are laws that also enable uh, their disqualification if they're deemed as sort of uh, not recognizing Israel's Jewish character. Uh, You have one political party that explicitly calls for a state for all its citizens, and this is explicitly used as a means to keep going after that political party. This is the Balad or Tajamma party. So you have these kind of constant attempts to also curb and stifle what Palestinians are allowed to say. And this is in stark contrast to uh, much of the Jewish-Israeli and Zionist political spectrum, where even the most racist and even genocidal remarks by Israeli political figures, uh, even by party platforms that call for the explicit annexation of other occupied territories, etc., that this is all enabled by that political system. So you see these massive contrasts between those two communities. And what about Jewish views of this Arab population? There's one thing, the demographic time bomb, right? They're afraid that they're reproducing like crazy and it will overwhelm the Jewish population. This is, yeah, these are kind of um, almost like these contradictory elements whereby, especially in recent years, uh, much of Jewish Israeli society has grown more accustomed to Palestinian citizens being part of the socioeconomic life. Everything from malls to hospitals, the presence of Arab citizens uh, has grown quite a bit. There's that kind of I hesitate to use the word integration, but there is that presence. But in reality, and this is what we're really seeing in full force uh, in times of war, like now, is that for most Jewish Israelis, if they could get rid of Palestinian citizens, they would do it in an instant. Most still see us as these kind of enemy citizens. They see us as a fifth column, as people who, because we're Palestinian, uh, both by virtue of us being non-Jewish and by virtue of us also being part of the Palestinian people, and especially even posing a different viewpoint when it comes to wars like what we're seeing in Gaza or in the occupation in the West Bank, that we are seen as a society that needs to be curbed and limited, not just in the, the idea of like a security level, but in that exactly in that demographic level, and that we're constantly seen as almost a threat to Israel's identity as a Jewish state. And that's, again, it's not something secret or subconscious. It's very explicit in the laws and policies that the government uh, pushes forward. It's very much normalized as well when people describe Israel as needing to be a Jewish state without actually realizing what that entails for Palestinian citizens. And for Jewish Israelis, this is almost like a natural and desired uh, state of affairs that even with those who regard themselves on the Israeli political left, uh, excluding a certain radical left, but for the Zionist left, they may be willing to give Palestinian citizens all kinds of like sort of socioeconomic rights and the right to vote, but you will often find that they will reach a limit of what we're allowed to have, especially when it comes to demographics, especially when it comes to expressing our identity as Palestinians who want to have a more equal state than the one we have now. I'm speaking with the journalist Amjad Iraqi. And you, you touched on this a bit, but I'd like to hear some more. In a time of war like this, I imagine these uh, feelings are heightened. Very much so. Um, and we've been seeing this, especially with increasing velocity um, in the repeated wars, especially over Gaza since 2009. But this one that we're seeing now has really jumped to a whole new level. Uh, and the government and Israeli society, Jewish Israeli society, is really using a lot of the mechanisms that they've developed over the past few years. And really exercising it in full force. Uh, we're seeing a massive kind of wave of persecution against Palestinian citizens, from political representatives to social media influencers to regular citizens to protesters. It's quite shocking. If you talk to Palestinian citizens, the dominant feeling right now is is total paralyzing fear. In universities now, uh, you have in university administrations basically threatening students and faculty members uh, with suspension or expulsion or other kind of disciplinary actions if they speak out against the war. Uh, you have the Israeli police effectively banning uh, any kind of protest uh, that goes against the Israeli military operation and in support of Gaza. Are uh, you having uh, many arrests of, uh, of prominent people and even just, again, like regular protesters on the streets? This is on top of this 
massive incitement that you're seeing from Israeli politicians, not just against Palestinians in Gaza, but also just dehumanizing Palestinians inside the state as these enemies. On top of this as well is the fact that uh, Israel's national security minister, Itamar Ben-Gvir, you know, with the backing of the rest of his cabinet, are basically freely giving firearms to Jewish Israelis and encouraging them to carry guns at all times. And this is also is heightening the sense of total insecurity and total fear for Palestinian citizens anywhere they go. You feel this almost like what I'm bluntly going to say is this totalitarian shift from the state authorities, but also from Jewish Israeli society, which is really turning against Palestinian citizens in this moment. And you can feel that they're on the constant edge of total violence and total repression, as we're seeing now. Okay, this is a good pivot for what else I wanted to talk about, which is the document that uh, your magazine, 972, uh, published, among others, the intelligence uh, ministry's proposed population transfer. Now, I've seen uh, the um, seriousness of this challenge. I saw, uh, I think, Colin Haret said this agency is not one to be taken seriously. These are not serious plans. Could you describe the plan and uh, how seriously should we take it? Yeah, so the particular document is from, uh, it's called like the Ministry of Intelligence, which is kind of this, it is a bit of a minor portfolio in the grand scheme of things. And you know, in the end, the intelligence organizations like Mossad and the Shin Bet, they operate unto themselves in that respect, and they report to the prime minister's office. While noting that context, I think it's quite uh, alarming and telling that, first of all, a senior Israeli government official is being able to put this out, not just as some kind of random rhetorical thing that they said on a radio station, but actually has produced a policy paper to do so. And the minister who heads, who heads it, uh, Gilad Gamliel, is a member of the Likud party, like the main dominant party led by Benjamin Netanyahu. And she is considered uh, almost like a quote-unquote moderate in this uh, in this right-wing party. So if someone like her uh, and someone like and something like that intelligence ministry is actually putting seriously to words the, the ideas of fully expelling the Gazan population. It's just one indication of a much larger structure that's being that we're seeing across government institutions, even the military itself, and across Israeli society and Israeli media, which for the most part is really done with Gaza's existence and the existence of 2.3 million Palestinians in that territory. And they feel that after Hamas's attack in the southern communities and the massacres that took place there, that the only solution is to completely erase Gaza's population, to kick them out to the Egyptian Sinai. And the fact is that it's not just some... It's not just kind of like fear-mongering. Uh, a few weeks ago, we saw the Israeli army order... Over a million people evacuate the northern Gaza Strip all the way down south. And they're bombarding the north and the south at the same time. There's a lot of diplomatic discussion about Egypt trying to open up the crossing to kind of create these refugee camps basically in the in the northern Sinai Desert. These are all things that are known that are happening on the ground as we speak. And even though we're still finding out exactly what the full scope of the operation is going to be, uh, the Israeli army is already uh, launching these ground incursions that are kind of almost recarving out the Gaza Strip and forcing uh, the 2 million Palestinians into small and smaller territory. And Israeli officials themselves are openly saying that the Sinai solution is for us a solution. Um, and it's not beyond the realm of possibility, whether it's by design uh, or even just by massive accident that masses of refugees along the border are trying to escape the bombardment and they just spill over into Egypt. So this, these things need to be taken very seriously and they, and they need to be taken uh, as declarations of intent. It's not just this tiny ministry. It is really across the board. And knowing Jewish Israeli society, this is almost desired that if this could happen, they see this as the, as the appropriate response, uh, as the appropriate uh, method to solve the quote unquote Gaza problem. And this is very, very alarming. Egypt would probably not be very interested in uh, welcoming all these refugees. It's not. And President Sisi has, has said quite explicitly, at least publicly, that he's not interested in turning the Sinai into a base for uh, not just Palestinian refugees, but also for the potential for Palestinian uh, militant action. So at least on a security standpoint for Egypt, it doesn't see that as, as something that's desirable, and nor does it have the economic power to even provide these refugees at its own economic crisis. Now, there are rumors that um, there are basically attempts to create sort of almost like a buyout for Egypt, which is, has you know has massive debt and economic crisis, and to basically provide them with economic incentives to allow this. Again, these are kind of uh, backroom diplomatic talks that we can only uh, suspect. 
but it is alarming that it's not really been entirely taken off the table. And despite American officials saying that, oh, no, we're trying to find a solution for Palestinians in Gaza, uh, like inside the territory, it's quite telling the amount of pressure that's being put on Cairo to provide that opening. And that even the idea of like a quote unquote temporary relocation for millions of refugees is bound to be permanent. Palestinians in Gaza know full well that if they are removed from their land in any set, in any form, they will be unlikely to return. Uh, keep in mind that most of Gaza's population are refugees who are descendants of refugees who were originally displaced in the 1948 war and who can see the lands from which their families belong to and are still barred from doing so. And this applies to all Palestinian refugees as well. Uh, so the idea that they will be thrown into Egypt and then kept there on a temporary basis, no Palestinian can believe that story. They know that if they are expelled, it is most likely that they'll be permanently expelled and that Israel will take advantage to seize more territory of Gaza, whether it's as a military buffer zone or for Israeli settlements, as some Israeli politicians are demanding. Watching this bombing, it almost seems that uh, the intention of it is to render Gaza uninhabitable. So it would be a fait accompli that there's just no place to live. Basic services will have been destroyed. Uh, is that a fair reading of what's going on? Absolutely. Like we are really seeing unprecedented levels of what is essentially carpet bombing of entire refugee camps, entire towns and cities. The bombing is not just like sort of the bricks of the house. It's the infrastructure that's underneath it. It's the water, it's the sewage, it's ability to get food. Shops and bakeries are being destroyed. Uh, roads, uh, even just to get people to safety, are being completely decimated. And the levels of destruction are so shocking. Like, they're exactly as you would see almost like Syrian cities being bombarded by the Assad regime or in Ukraine with the Russians just indiscriminately bombarding it. It is entirely about incapacitating Gaza as much as possible. The very idea of rehabilitation, which Gaza has been unable to do after repeated military aggressions for the decade, the past decade plus, on top of a, of a very cruel blockade, which has been limiting for years now, even the most basic goods uh, under this kind of, you know, quote unquote rubric of like security. Uh, but in reality, it's a civilian population that's being destroyed, that's being dispossessed. There's almost no hope for Gaza to be fully rehabilitated, especially under these conditions. And sadly, the international community, for all its lip service about uh, providing aid to Gaza and ensuring that they'll be able to rebuild their lives after Israel achieves whatever military objectives it's it's claiming to uh, to pursue, in reality, they have been very complicit in allowing the blockade and not pressuring Israel to allow Gaza to properly rehabilitate, to justify these military assaults, and to say that, oh, if they're targeting at least one Hamas commander, it's okay that 100 civilians are killed, that 200 homes are destroyed, that entire infrastructure is completely, is completely torn to shreds. And this is a very alarming a very, very alarming reality whereby, yes, if Gaza was unlivable before, and it's going to be almost completely unlivable if the guns stop uh, anytime soon. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to see what the um, overall intention of this um, relentless bombardment is, if not that. Just defeating Hamas, as they say, um, would require a whole different set of strategies than just carpet bombing a vast area of densely populated land. What else would be the strategy behind this? The strategy, put bluntly, is revenge. This is the first and foremost one. And it, there is really a total indulgence of revenge because of the massacres that happened in southern communities. Even before the Israeli army had a plan, they just went about bombing. Like they just knew, let us at least match the death count and and exceed it. This is itself is almost a military an Israeli military doctrine. Just keep disproportionately harming Palestinians, both to tell Palestinians that we could do that, and also to tell Israelis that oh we're doing something. And this and so death and destruction is itself the goal, at least until they can formulate something more coherent. And there's a lot of debates within the Israeli political and military apparatus about what exactly is the is the end game for this particular round, uh, and it's everything from the quote unquote. Sinai solution to even just like annexing parts of Gaza as a military zone or for settlements. Like there's a whole range of, of conflicts within the within the establishment. Uh, but for now, just the default method of showing Israelis and showing the world and showing Palestinians of just inflicting complete wanton revenge is the policy. Uh, and it's alarming. And you're seeing even the Israeli public and Israeli media, or at least m much of them, just calling for this, just asking for that, uh, for, for revenge, just to incur any kind of cost. It doesn't matter whether it's to Hamas, because for many people, they don't see a difference between, between 
the between the Islamist movement and 2.2 million civilians. They don't see any distinction between uh, between even a political party or an armed group and the entire society. For much of Israeli society, the Palestinian people are themselves a problem, and they're the ones who need to go. They're the ones who need to pay a, pay a price. And even just on, on experts or officials who should know better are basically enabling that when they say, no, they're targeting Hamas, no, or that Hamas is using human shields. How is it a human shield if someone is living in their home in the refugee camp and the story is somehow, oh, Israel uh, bombarded, uh, targeted a Hamas commander, one Hamas commander for 100 uh, Palestinian civilians? Like this is an exchange rate that is absolutely unacceptable. It's so dehumanizing. But f- like I said, for the Israeli state and society, uh, this is logical. This is what's expected. This is what should be the case. Uh, and that shouldn't be normalized. I was Amjad Araki, a Palestinian citizen of Israel and an editor at Plus 972 magazine, a joint Israeli-Palestinian venture. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. some of A State of Peace, an unusually contemplative track by Noor Jaber from 2018, her normal fare is energetic techno. Originally from Beirut, she now lives and works in Berlin. Next, the latest version of the New World Disorder is exemplified by the expulsion of the Armenians from Nagorno-Karabakh by Azerbaijan in September. That expulsion came after a 10-month blockade and was the latest in a long series of travails suffered by Armenians. As my next guest, Georgi Derlugian, argued in an interesting piece in the New York Times in early October, this is an example of what the world is turning into, a series of conflicts in a multipolar world that could be read as theaters in what's looking more and more like World War III. Derlugian is a sociologist who teaches at NYU's Abu Dhabi campus. Georgi Derlugian. I think a lot of people looked at what happened uh, with the Armenians in Nagorno-Karabakh and just looked very confused. So there's a long history to this, but uh, let's start just immediately with the most recent history, this crisis and expulsion. What led to this? The history is actually not that long and not really that complicated as many people would make it sound. What happened is that there were Russian peacekeepers introduced after the last war in 2020, just three years ago. Azerbaijan is an oil state rich enough, but also very well supplied with advanced weapons, mostly by Israel and Turkey. So using those advanced weapons, they attacked the self-defense forces, or as they call them, terrorists, on the ground in Karabakh. And the Russian peacekeepers just stood and watched. Curiously enough, several of them apparently got in crossfire, including senior Russian officers, were killed. They were no wounded. Strangely enough, you know, just everyone was killed. I think seven or eight officers in total. Uh, Azerbaijan apologized to Russia, and Russia immediately accepted those apologies. So it's rather mysterious, you know, what might have been the arrangements here. The Armenian troops, uh, self-defense forces of Karabakh, held out for about a day. Uh, They suffered about 200 casualties, inflicted some casualties on the attackers, but then... The leadership of Karabakh made a deal with basically surrendering on the promise that the people would be let out. And indeed, Azerbaijan let out majority of Karabakhs, except for the former political leadership and a few generals of self-defense forces of Karabakh who've been arrested, again, as terrorists and brought to Baku for trial. Several people disappeared. Why are Israel and Turkey supplying weapons? We can only guess. For a long time, Israeli participation 
uh, was kept just as secret as the Turkish help was brandished all over. For Mr. Erdogan, it is very important to show to his nationalist public and also to Europe, you know, which doesn't seem to like him very much, that he is wielding influence, including in the former Soviet space. So his slogan is that Azerbaijan and Turkey are two different states, but one nation. These are very similar languages, although they never made one nation historically. The same as Erdogan would claim, you know, that Northern Cyprus could be part of Turkey. You know, so he has rather grandiose idea of what should be the Turkish sphere of influence. On the other hand, uh, Israelis were actually embarrassed to recognize that any weapons were being sold, but the estimates are coming you know, from various international monitoring institutes, you know, which claim that Azerbaijan gets up to two-thirds of its arsenal now from Israel. We can only guess why. Azerbaijan is... Uh, so far the only historically Shia Muslim country to establish diplomatic relations with Israel. But that would not be probably enough. Could it be that Azerbaijan has large airfields which it had inherited from the Soviet military? From those airfields, Iran is within an easy reach. So could that be an explanation? That's anyone's guess. Nagorno-Karabakh itself is a very contested uh, region. Who's been fighting over it for how long and why? Everything in, in that uh, region is contested, but then again, you know, not so much. You know, for uh, several hundred years, the area was under Iranian control. There have been, you know, different Iranian dynasties, of course, there, you know, the, the Parthians, all the way, you know, a couple thousand years ago, Achaemenids, Parthians, you know, you name it, you know, uh, all the way to Safavids and Qajars more, more recently. But it has always been Iran. And then in 1828, with the downfall of Asia and the rise of the West, Russian Empire, for the first time actually ever, arrived from the north, conquered the territory, and it became part of Russia, ever since the or Russian imperial state. Then in 1917, there was a revolution in Russia, as you probably know, and Russian Empire fell apart, and the periphery of Russian Empire did not recognize the Bolshevik communist government in the center. And when Lenin and uh, his comrades took power in Petrograd in Moscow, so for a few years, there were independent national states trying to emerge, you know, the local nationalist movements in Armenia, Azerbaijan, Georgia, other countries in the periphery of Russian Empire, Ukraine for that matter, tried to establish themselves as internationally recognized national states. However, they failed in the face of uh, much more successful you know, Bolshevik uh, reconquest. And by 1920, 21, and you know, so it, it all made part of the future Soviet Union once again. Karabakh, however, you know, was majority populated by Armenians, traditionally for yeah, hundreds of years, but it was attached to Azerbaijan, because, to remind you, Comrade Stalin himself started his revolutionary biography in Baku because it was a major oil town at the turn of the 20th century. How major? So there were two big suppliers of kerosene to the global markets in the late uh, 19th century. One was, very familiar to you, John D. Rockefeller and Standard Oil. The other were the Noble Brothers, probably also familiar to you, as the Nobles family, you know, uh, of the same fame as the Nobel Prize. Uh, so these were two major original oil centers in the world. Mind it, you know, this is long before Saudis, for instance, or the Middle East in general. And that's why the Bolsheviks believed that Soviet Azerbaijan would be the beacon of industrialization. They really believed in modernism and that the working class in big cities such as Baku would be a much better ally for rather remote rural areas like Karabakh than, say, you know, Armenia, although it was co-ethnic, but it was much poorer at the time. This is my explanation, my historical explanation. You know, it's not some malfeasance. You know, it's by Stalin, and as many uh, suppose. You know, Stalin was a very sincere believer in industrial progress. He was ruthless at that, absolutely. But... He had his ideas, and the biggest revelation we got from the archives is that he really was a communist. He really believed in his ideas, and that's why 
he expected the Soviet Union to continue forever. And that's why he uh, expected that the Karabakh issue would fade away in the face of industrial progress. It didn't happen. With the collapse of Soviet Union, the conflict had reignited again. It went on for another 30 years. And now we see the end of the conflict, effectively, in a very old-fashioned way by conquest and ethnic cleansing. I don't think there is much realistic prospect of Armenians returning in serious numbers back to their homes in Karabakh in the next generation, or actually ever. That's done. You say in your piece in the Times that uh, Gorbachev's dreams of achieving a more rational, humane Soviet Union uh, emboldened Armenian intellectuals to start a tremendous popular movement for uniting the Armenian-populated Nagorno-Karabakh with mainland Armenia. Could you talk about that history and then uh, the evolution of uh, politics in that region? That's a historical irony, and history has a penchant of reminding about itself through ironies, very brutal ironies. So if we polled experts on Soviet Union, you know, major Sovietologists of the 1970s, where would they locate biggest challenges to the Soviet rule? They would probably point to some deeply Islamic areas in Central Asia, you know, minding that you know, Americans had just run into similar prob- problems in Iran, or to the Baltic states, saying that, of course, you know, these were previously independent national states and part of Europe, you know, places like Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia. They have a history of armed resistance to the Soviets, probably never accepted, a majority of population never really accepted the Soviet rule there, or it would be probably Western Ukraine. To remind you of the conflicts of kind of the dogs that didn't bark, the capital, no less than the capital of independent Lithuania, is Vilnius, which was attached to Lithuania only by Stalin and Hitler jointly in October 1939. And it is still there. It used to be a significant Polish provincial capital city. When Poland and Lithuania were joining the European Union in the 1990s, there was not even a pip about the transfer of Vilnius back to Poland. Or for that matter, of Lviv or Lvov, which is now Ukrainian, major Ukrainian city, back to Poland. Or for that matter, and we all understand why, because Germany never claimed Danzig. In Polish would be Danzig today. So all that history was kind of forgotten. It's a miracle which needs an explanation. Sometimes it's very important to kind of notice uh, the strength of what we consider to be actually very weak players like the EU. However, in the Caucasus, a major fire was started precisely because nobody had expected it to become a major of fire. It all looked so easy and rational and humane. Mountainous Karabakh or Nagorno Karabakh was just about you know, 25, 40, 50 kilometers away from Armenia, surrounded by you know, some Azerbaijani territory. These were both Soviet republics, Soviet Azerbaijan, Soviet Armenia, presumably brothers and sisters uh, of the socialist uh, neighborhood. So why not just transfer the Armenian autonomous province of Karabakh from Azerbaijan into Republic of Armenia, Soviet Socialist Republic of Armenia? That all seemed so easy, deceptively easy. So when that plea was submitted to Gorbachev in 1988, it almost immediately started fighting, first with sticks, soon with shotguns, eventually with machine guns, fighting on the ground between Armenian and Azerbaijani villagers. Very soon, within days, there would be pogroms, like almost like you have seen you know, recently, you know, these attempted Jewish pogrom in Dagestan last Sunday. So there were pogroms against Armenians in Azerbaijan, and about 400,000 ethnic Armenians were expelled from Baku, you know, so such major cities as I mentioned to you, and from Kerabat, or what is now called Ganja, as well as probably hundred, and it's very difficult to estimate, hundred thousand, you know, maybe more ethnic Azerbaijanis were expelled from Armenia. There were mostly rural populations there, quite well-rooted peasants. So there was essentially a population exchange, as you might have seen earlier between, say, Greece and Turkey. That always leaves a very bitter aftertaste, you know, but as you, uh, you could also see, you know, that, that bitter traces, you know, could have been 
if not erased, you know, at least you know, somehow contained, as in the case of Polish populations expelled from Ukraine, and still Poland now is a major backer of Ukraine in its war against Russia. So something could have been done about it, but it was not, with the Soviet Union very soon deteriorating in the face of such challenges, just like Karabakh fight in the South Caucasus. This all escalated to almost regular war, first guerrilla war, as I said, you know, from fist fights to sticks, from sticks to shotguns, from shotguns to machine guns, from machine guns actually to missiles, to artillery. And in that war in 1994, Armenians had prevailed for the reasons you know, that I wouldn't go into now. Uh, this time, Azerbaijan had accumulated you know, much more money, uh, much more weapons, including you know, very sophisticated weapons com- uh, compared to the old arsenals inherited by Armenians from the Soviet Union. And so Azerbaijan had prevailed and undertook a massive ethnic cleansing. That's all. That, se- that settles the problem, if you, if you wish. I'm speaking with the sociologist Georgi Delugian. You say Iran is not happy with Azerbaijan's victory. Uh, what, what are Iranian interests here? That's actually a very interesting point that you raise. Many people, especially unfamiliar with the situation, many people in Russia, for instance, in the West, would readily explain the Armenian-Azerbaijani conflict as something between Muslims and Christians. Armenians, to remind you, are you know, uh, very proud of being probably the first uh, Christian nation in the world. They have converted as early as 301 AD, before the Roman Empire even. So uh, Azerbaijanis are traditionally under Iranian influence, you know, so the majority of them, about 85%, you know, used to be Shia Muslims, at least, you know, before the Soviet uh, modernization. However, as you can see, Iran, the Islamic Republic of Iran, is quite unhappy with it. Geopolitics trumps the clash of civilization because Iran is surrounded on almost all sides, you know, with regimes which are not exactly friendly to the Islamic Republic, or the Islamic Republic is not quite friendly to them. And Iran is a historical rival to Turkey, or actually it goes back again, you know, several thousand years here, because it's structural. Uh, You could always raise enough armies on the Iranian plateau, and so there would be always some kind of a strong Iranian empire. And you could also raise significant armies in the Balkans and in that part of Anatolia, which used to be ancient Greece. And eventually it was Roman Empire or the Macedonian and then Roman and then it was Byzantine before it became Ottoman Turkish. And yet they always continued fighting with the Persian Empire because that's what empires do. They fight with each other for what Max Weber famously called Macht Prestige, you know, the prestige of imperial might. And Armenia was always squeezed in the middle, which is why Armenia is not such a great power and was essentially trampled over by the battle elephants and cavalries of the two sides. So this continues to this day. Interestingly enough, you know, Mr. Uh, Erdogan is certainly an Islamist, and he is a leader of an important, probably the most important, Sunni Muslim movement. His party, which is uh, the party of power in Turkey. And Iran is, of course, an Islamic republic. And yet, they are a dagger's drone against each other. Historically have been, you know, threatening each other. Iranian leaders, you know, they never spell their interests quite openly. Iran is actually, you know, they are masters of obfuscation. Their words and their moves are left to the guessing of outsiders. But we see, you know, that Iran is definitely trying to keep its options open on the northern border. They won't cross Armenia, for instance, you know, to maintain a corridor to European Union, for that matter, or to to Russia, uh, in order to do trade and just not to be encircled uh, by the great designs of Mr. Erdogan to build Islamic empire among the Arabs and Ottoman, you know, New Turkic empire in Central Asia. This may sound grandiose, but in that part of the world, trust me, just like as Americans (laughs) sometimes think about themselves in grandiose terms, many people who drink coffee, play backgammon, think in grandiose historical terms. This is how it works. And Russia has been absent uh, for much of this uh, recent uh, history. Um, Why? Just the herons full in Ukraine or what? Probably. 
Well, the Russian calculation, again, is uh, just left to, to guesswork. I am not sure that even Russian diplomats and the top military know exactly what are the plans. You know, So when we say Russians, we use the plural. However, it's actually a singular right now, and we know the name and the family name. You know, it's Vladimir Vladimirovich Putin, who is making decisions, but does he really communicate his decisions you know, to all of his underlings? One is left wondering. Russia probably expects you know, that if they win at least an armistice in Ukraine, an armistice on their terms, if the West is worn down and is ready to settle for something you know, with Russia, Putin would be able to claim victory. And that would allow him to return, maybe enforce, to rebuild his armies and return to the places easily scared, like the South Caucasus, you know, because, of course, the potential of uh, Russian army and, say, Azerbaijani or Armenian army are still incomparable. If they lose in Ukraine, then everything is lost. Then why bother? So I think the problem in Karabakh was taken by Moscow now for granted, that where would they go if we still exist? If we don't exist, you know, it doesn't matter for us. But what matters more, there is additional very important calculation. Azerbaijan is an oil exporter, as I mentioned. But there isn't much oil left, actually, as we are reminded by the economists you know, who follow this market. However, you know, after like 150 years of exploration, there shouldn't be much left. However, Azerbaijan has recently multiplied the amounts of oil it sells on the world markets. How could that be? The easy explanation is that uh, Russian companies are selling to Azerbaijan. Azerbaijan is reselling it at some markup, probably through Turkey, maybe, to the West. I know many probably state officials in the West would be actually happy to turn a blind eye to such shenanigans, you know, because they are worried that Western sanctions against Russia are not working anyway. And this is leaving um, the Western economies facing higher and higher energy prices. Turkey also remains a significant conduit of what they call gray exports to Russia. Turkey is not part of Western sanctions regime against Russia. Washington is trying to put some screws on Mr. Erdogan. Mr. Erdogan, through clenched teeth, says that he might be complying. But at the same time, of course, you know, he is making significant profits uh, economically and politically by supplying Russia with, say, microchips uh, to Coca-Cola cans, whatever is possible to sell. So I think, you know, there are very significant components of economic and kind of, you know, sanction circumvention calculations in the behavior of Moscow. And finally, in your piece, you say uh, what's going on here is a harbinger of the coming world disorder. Could you expand on that? What do you mean? Oh, this means, you know, that in, in my belief, you know, we are not just facing a world war. We are in a world war. That world war is uh, right now a counterattack of Asian semi-peripheral powers like Turkey, Russia for that matter, you know, which is uh, acting as a Eurasian power, uh, China, maybe some others you know, so would get into action. Iran, we are waiting for India and Pakistan to open their fronts. You know, the countries which have very high esteem of themselves as great civilizations, Countries which have huge imperial inheritance. And that imperial inheritance is actually quite recent uh, in historical terms. You know, just you know, several hundred years ago, Ottoman Empire or Persia, not to mention, of course, you know, China, were very important global players in every field. And then comes the European colonialism. And this is why they are so so acutely aware of Western domination, which they tried to challenge. They saw the weakness of the West first in the chaotic decolonization following the Second World War. There was the first attempt you know, to strike back at the West, the attempt from which you know, we remember people like Jawaharlal Nehru or Gamal Abdel Nasser in Egypt, uh, the non-aligned movement. Then it kind of you know, went down the drains in the 1980s and 90s uh, amidst uh, market failures, democratization movements, you know, all of those places. You know, all of and then it reemerged on the new basis 
of technologies and industries transferred from the West. So what you know as outsourcing or what you know as the emergence of Rust Belt in America, do you realize it was a huge bonus to Asia, right? And so those jobs went somewhere and that helped to reinflate, of course, the power of China, the power of Turkey. And then they saw, you know, the next step, they saw American superpower stumbling in ridiculously small places like Afghanistan, in insignificant places like Iraq. So if Americans fail in places like Afghanistan, what are we waiting for? So that was the Russian calculation, obviously. You know, so of course, counterattack, claim your own sphere of influence and make sure that Americans fail and never come back again. So this is the game now. You know, so we are in the midst of the world war for defining a new world order. That new world order could be multilateralist or multipolar, as they prefer to call it outside of the West, meaning that everyone else becomes a pole of its own. They carve their own spheres of imperial influence and they do as they please. You know, they no longer need to conform to some norms of democratization, you know, just claiming that we are trying to catch up with your democratic norms. No, we are what we are. This is how we rule ourselves. We are going to have our great invincible rulers like Putin, like Stalin before him, or like uh, Ottoman sultans, and now like Mr. Erdogan and so forth. This is going to be kind of a very authoritarian world. And perhaps, perhaps something much resembling the nightmares of George Orwell in 1984. Not three, but maybe six or seven competing superpowers. So that's unfortunately, you know, at the moment, you know, this is the prognosis. It might fail. So far, it looks like everyone in this big uh, fight is failing. The West, but also Russia. And it doesn't look like, you know, China is very confident of their own strength. But that's a whole different conversation. That was Georgi Derlugian, a sociologist who teaches at NYU Abu Dhabi. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Regular listeners will know my fondness for the music of Bergsonist, who originally comes from Morocco and now lives in New York. She put up a trio of older tracks on Bandcamp under the title Cease Fire Now, which are downloadable for free. This is some of one of them, Protect the Human Rights of Palestinian Children. Till next week, bye.